Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Come on up here, gentlemen. Why don't you just set that right here, kind of next to the step, facing outward there. Romans chapter 8. We begin last week looking at verses 31 and 32. Mainly 31, touched for a moment on verse 32. I had a birthday not too long ago, and one of the ladies in the church has been a part of the, the last couple of years at least of Romans, um, kind of slyly at a request. Uh, my wife asked me, what would be your favorite verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 32? And that's kind of an impossible question to answer, but this is certainly a standout verse in what I believe is the greatest chapter in the Word of God. And I said, probably Romans 8.32, and so I received this on my birthday. It's Romans 8.32 in 10 or 12 different languages. So I just wanted that to be up here as a prop as we go through. It's true in any language. The truth of this verse is true in any language. So let's spend some time this morning looking deeper into this truth. Let me just read verses 31 and 32 for you of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? So let me just give you a quick setup here. Reminder of the chapter. Paul's coming here. Toward the end of the chapter, in the last section of this greatest of chapters. It's a chapter that opened with the great propositional truth that the entire chapter is really about. And that that truth is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Not now, not ever can there be. And so what he does through the chapter is he, in a variety of ways, in corollary truths, he supports that great statement in like five different sections. And he comes down here to the last section and he's taking a survey of it all and he opens up in verse 31 and he says, what then shall we say to these things? What's the overall conclusion? What's the great arching Truth related to the things that we have just been talking about in this chapter. And he says in verse 31, asks the question, he's going to ask five questions, but the first question he asks in verse 31, as a response to all of these things, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
The point being, if God's for you, no one can effectively be against you. That if God is for you, then that truth that He had just stated in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, that the God who foreknew you and predestined you and called you to Himself and justified you and will glorify you, that there is no one that can stop that eternal purpose of God toward you if you're a believer. There is no one. So that's the first question that he asks. If we were to reword the question, we could word it like this. Is there anyone that can stop the purposes of God for you? I'm convinced that's what Paul meant. If, any, if God is for us, who could be against us? Who could stop the purposes of God toward us? The saving, eternal purposes of God. And the answer is absolutely no one. But then what he does in the 32nd verse, if I were to try to reword the question that he is stating in verse 32, let me read verse 32 again. He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? You see, Paul has a very different focus point in verse 32. He's asking us something about God here. He's not asking us something about the rest of the universe, the human world or the demonic spiritual realm, he is directing the focus point of verse 32 right back upon God. And so I believe what he is saying here, if we could reword this question, he is asking this, is there anything that could happen or is it ever possible that God's love for you could change? To the sons and the daughters of God, could it ever be conceivable that the God who loves you now may not love you tomorrow or next year or throughout eternity? Is it a possibility? Question related to God. And what he does here in this verse is he gives us what I believe is the strongest possible argument that could be stated to affirm to us and substantiate the truth that there can never be any condemnation for those who are in Christ to substantiate the truth that God's love for you is never going to change. If He saved you, you're always going to be saved. Nothing can ever happen that will cause God to feel about you any different than He feels about you right now. He proves that by pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 32? That is the entire basis of the argument here. 
And what we looked at last week in just a few moments toward the end of the message, what I pointed out to you as an overarching truth of this verse here, Romans 8.32, is this, that the cross of Jesus is the work of the Father. That if you're going to understand the thrust of Paul's argument and the power of what he is saying here, you have to understand that what he is teaching us is that the cross of Jesus Christ was actually the work of the Holy, perfect, eternal Father. And if you understand that, then you're going to understand the love of God in a way that you could understand in no other way. And you're going to have within you the deep conviction of the security of your salvation if you understand that the cross of Jesus was the work of the Father. Not primarily the work of evil men, not even primarily the work of Satan and his malicious, malevolent, malevolent ways, but it was the very predetermined plan of the Father to crush the Son. We looked at that in a general way at the end of the message last week. Now what I want to do this week, as I told you last Sunday, I want to dive deeply into verse 32. Because this is so important, so profound, so securing to our confidence in our salvation when we understand this, we're going to dig deeply and look closely. And what I'm asking you to do is get a hold of every word, get a hold of every phrase. Each one is so precisely selected and profound. It says in Romans 8.32, first of all, that God did not spare His own Son. His own Son. First of all, who is the centerpiece of Paul's argument here? On whom or on what does Paul base the absolute security that he's wanting to build in believers that the purposes of God and their salvation will forever stand. And the way he does that is he points to the cross of Jesus Christ. And he shouts out as he does. That's the proof Right there. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the proof that God's love for you will never change. That He will love you constantly and He will love you eternally and He will love you lavishly. Look to the cross. He looks to the cross here and He shouts out, that's the proof right there that God will give you all of His glorious riches. He points to the cross and He shouts out, that's the proof right there that you are forever as a son or a daughter of God going to be on the receiving end of the inexhaustible riches of God. 
The cross of Jesus is the proof. Hopefully by the end of the message, you're going to understand that in its depth as the Lord enables me through His Spirit to proclaim it. So let's look closely. It was God's own Son that He gave. It was His own Son. Now what does Paul mean by that? Earlier in this chapter, verse 14, if you have your Bibles open, look up to verse 14. Paul wrote this, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Verse 15, that they have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. Verse 16, that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, talking to everyone that has put their faith in Christ. So, here's the question. Is Paul saying right here that Jesus is a son just like we are all sons and daughters of God? That in the same way that he referred to every believer in verses 14, 15, and 16, that Jesus is that kind of a son? And the answer to that is no. That's not what he's saying. Paul emphasizes the uniqueness and the singularity of Jesus' sonship, and he does it by one word here. He says that it was his own son. It was His own Son. What we have here, I told you last week that in this verse, so many of the great doctrines of the Christian faith are crammed into this one verse in singular or one or two word phrases. And right here, we have the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Among many other things, that doctrine teaches us this. That word, own, teaches us this. That Jesus is not an adopted son. Jesus has for all eternity been God's son. He didn't at one point become God's son. His sonship is an eternal generation. It's not an adoption John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, the Logos. That's Jesus Christ right there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He didn't have a beginning. He was there in the beginning. He has always been there. And He was not only with God, He was God. He's not an adopted son. He is a son from all eternity, eternal generation. Secondly, he's not a created son. He is in fact himself the creator of all things. John 1.3 All things were made through him, through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Well, could this mean that Jesus 
is a son in that he bears a very close likeness to his father, like a human son can to his father. No, it doesn't mean that because Jesus is exactly as his father. He is not just the bearer of a likeness. He is the exact image of his father. Hebrews 3, 1, or Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1, 19. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did you hear that? In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Don't lose sight of the argument Paul is making. What is the thrust of his argument? That if you want to have the proof of what he's saying, the proof of God's unfailing eternal love, the proof that if He foreknew you and predestined you and called you to Himself and justified you, then He is going to every time eternally glorify you. The proof is centered in the fact of who Jesus is that God gave. And who He is is this, just in the three things that I just mentioned, He's this. He is the co-equal, co-eternal member of the Godhead. He is divine. He has always been divine. He's divine right now, and He will forever be God. That is who is involved in the gift of the Father being used to prove to the believer that if God has moved toward you in His saving purposes, it's guaranteed. Why? Because it was the co-equal, co-eternal Son of God that He gave on the cross to accomplish it. Again, Look closely at every phrase. He who did not spare his own son. God who did not spare his own son. That word, that phrase is so rich in meaning. It has an exact counterpart in the Hebrew of the Old Testament in a very profound story that lines up perfectly with the truth of what Paul is teaching here and that is in the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham where God came to Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to take him to a place that I'm going to tell you about, to a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him there for me. And Abraham listened, and Abraham immediately obeyed, 
And he gathered up his son and he gathered up a servant and the supplies and they made their journey and he built an altar and he laid his son on the altar and he raised the knife to plunge it into the breast of his one and only son. And the Father of heaven called out in Genesis chapter twenty two sixteen, and he stopped Abraham from plunging the knife and he said, because you have done this and have not withheld, there's the word, the exact counterpart to the Greek word in Romans 8.32 to the Hebrew word used right here, the exact same word, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. You see, what Paul is telling us here in this illusion here is that what Abraham was about to do with his only son, God the Father did do with His only Son. What God the Father stopped Abraham from doing to His only Son, God the Father of heaven did do to His holy, perfect Son. He did not withhold. He did not spare his own son. In the New Testament, this word is used about ten times. And the common thrust of the meaning here in Romans 8.32 and in most of its other uses is simply this. It is referring to Saving or relieving someone from a difficult experience or action. And it's used both positively and negatively. Meaning, in a positive way, it refers to saving someone or relieving someone, sparing someone from something very difficult that's going to happen. Or in the negative sense, not doing that. Not sparing, not relieving, not saving them from the bad, the difficult, the pain, the suffering that's going to happen. Not stopping it, not sparing them. That's what it means as well here in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. So it means this. That the Father, what Paul is saying is that the Father did not spare. He did not withhold from His Son, Jesus, anything that was a part of the suffering that had to happen for Jesus to make atonement, to pay the price, to satisfy and to save that the Father did not hold any of that back. He did not stop 
any of that. He didn't spare the perfect Holy Son from one single whiplash. He didn't spare the Son from one thorn in His brow. He didn't spare the Son from one step carrying the cross up the hill or one nail driven into the flesh. He held back not one thing. That's the point that Paul is making in the first half of the verse to drive his argument home that God the Holy Father held not one thing back from the suffering of Jesus Christ. Could He have done that? Folks, did God have the power to do that? Oh, He had the power to do that. And yet, He did not withhold one single iota of the suffering needed to accomplish the salvation of mankind. But that's only half the equation. Again, don't miss any phrase. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up. Gave Him up. You see, this is not simply not running in to save, not coming in to take away the pain. There is something very proactive here. Something very intentional here. Actually, the action of God is being spotlighted here. The work of the Holy Father is in view here. And what God did here is that He gave Jesus up. He wasn't a spectator to the suffering of His Son. He gave Him up for suffering. You see, this right here, this doctrine is the doctrine of the atonement. And when the doctrine of the atonement, and it's a, it's a deep doctrine, it's a doctrine that truly we cannot any one of us look fully into. But if you can understand the truth, the basic truth of the doctrine of the atonement, it, here's what it will do. When understood, it will shatter your fears and destroy your doubts and anchor the security of your eternal salvation on the unshakable, unbreakable, undefeatable, unchanging, all-encompassing, all conquering work of God and what He did proactively with His Son on the cross. He gave Him up. To what did He give Him up? We could answer that in a few different ways. You know the story. Many of you, I'm sure, We could say in one sense He gave Him up to evil men, couldn't we? Yes? Were there evil men involved? And did they carry out evil plans against Him? Oh, yes, they did. 
Did that take the father by surprise? No, it didn't. Could he have stepped in and stopped that process? Yes, he could have. But what did he do? He gave him up to it. We might say, in another way, just as truthfully, that the father gave him up to the evil one and his forces, to the very prince of darkness who carried out his hatred against him. But folks, neither of those is the doctrine of the atonement. You see, there is something else, something far greater, something far more intimidating, far more encompassing than the evil actions of men toward the Son and the evil schemes and plans of Satan and his forces against the Son, something far worse than that. Not that we can ever fully understand it, but I'll try to explain it like this. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, If you remember the story there, right before his crucifixion, right before his arrest and subsequent crucifixion, the next morning. There in the garden, Jesus gathered his disciples and he said, I want you to wait here while I go over there and pray. And he pulled away by himself and He threw himself on the ground and he began to cry out, pleading with his father, pleading to such an extent in prayer that blood emoted from the skin on his brow as sweat. Such intensity and fervency, such agony that he was in, turmoil in his heart, knowing what was coming. I ask you, in everything that you know about Jesus, was Jesus crying out in that indescribable intensity because he was afraid of men? Or because he was afraid of Satan? That is an impossible conclusion. Read his life. That's an impossible conclusion. So what was it that caused him to pray with such a fervency that it forced blood through the pores of his forehead? It was that he knew that the cross entailed the wrath of the Father. 
And when he said, let this cup, if possible, pass from me, what he was saying is, is there any other way that I can save that doesn't include me receiving your wrath against sin, Father? It is that thought that led to the intense pleading and bleeding in the garden. And it is that reality the next day that caused Him to cry out on the cross in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, folks, what was happening there is the unfolding of the doctrine of the atonement that Paul is pointing to here in the phrase, God gave him up. The holy wrath of a holy God had to be satisfied against sin. Sin had to be punished with the holy wrath of God. And what happened on the cross is that Jesus, who knew no sin by the Father, was made sin for us. Not theoretically, literally was made sin for us. And when that happened, what Jesus so feared the reason for his pleading and his bleeding in the garden was the fear of what would happen when he was made sin. And that was that the eternal, unbroken, perfect, intimate relationship that the Father and the Son had forever experienced would be severed and the Father would then unleash upon the Son His wrath against all the sin that those He foreknew and predestined and would call and would justify and would glorify all of that sin they would ever commit would become owned by the Son. He would become that sin and then the Father would extract from His flesh Price the penalty to satisfy his justice. And Jesus, looking forward, saw that reality and he threw himself down in agony in the garden and then cried out in agony on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is this. When Paul wrote this and used it as his argument, he was identifying the atonement saying, if the Father did that for you, 
if the Father gave the Son for you, the co-equal, co-eternal Son, not holding anything back from Him required to pay for the suffering, but actually giving Him up and pouring out upon Him the full fury of His wrath against sin. Even as Isaiah said, it was the Father's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. If He did that for you, then Paul is saying, what does that prove? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, what does that prove? That's the thrust of his argument. You see, if you look again at Romans 8.32, God is the actor in the first half of the verse and in the second. The argument doesn't make any sense if you just read the second half of the verse which says that God will with Jesus graciously give us all things. That's the promise part of it. But that promise is true because of the first part of the verse in which God is the same one doing the giving. If you take off the God as the giver in the first part, the second part doesn't make any sense. What Paul is saying in his argument is the God who gave in the first part of the verse is the same God who will guaranteed give in the second. In other words, the God who gave His co-equal, co-eternal Son, that's the proof that He's the God that with Him is going to also give you every single thing. Do you see the logic of that argument? So we could say it like this. God gave the best that proves the rest. I mean, everything else that God could give, it amounts to absolutely nothing compared to the one gift of His Son. And Paul says, if He gave you that, if He gave you that already, what would stop Him from giving you everything else? And the only answer to that is nothing. Nothing can stop Him from doing that. He will never relent having done everything to give you these minute things. He already gave you the best. He certainly will give you the rest. That's the argument of Romans 8.32. And it's indefeatable, unarguable. And remember, the first half of the verse, God's giving of His Son, not withholding anything, but giving Him up. Remember, it's a fact of history. It's not just a statement that he made. It is an historical moment with a real person and a real record that actually took place that we can look back to in history and say, at that moment God proved 
forever in an uncontestable way that those that He saved, He's going to glorify. Because if He already gave them His Son, the best, He's going to give them the rest. That's what Paul is teaching us here. Let's not miss a few more words here. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for, for us all. You know what doctrine is right there? The doctrine of the substitution. The substitutionary atonement, meaning what we should have got, Jesus got on the cross. The punishment that should have been ours. He became the substitute and took it for us. It was for us. And then, one more statement, and he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Two things here. Who is included in the all? Well, you have to put it into the context of the letter. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the church at Rome and he's writing to every believer. He is saying to everyone that God foreknew and predestined and calls to himself and justifies whom He will glorify that every one of you is included in the statement. But what I really want to highlight is this. In the us, who were we when He gave His Son? Who were we? We were sinners. We were rebels. We were enemies. We were antagonists to truth. We were in opposition. That's who God gave His Holy Son for. Again, follow the line of Paul's argument. If God did that for you while you were estranged, while you were in opposition to Him, while you were in open enmity toward Him, while you were a rebel pursuing your own way against His truth and against His ways, He gave His Son for you then. Now that He has saved you, Now that He has taken you, and actually what happens at justification, remember this from earlier in Romans or from previous studies that you may have had, that what happens in justification is that you actually become the righteousness of God. Do you remember that? Do you understand that? That's the thesis of Paul in the letter. He's telling us a way that we can be saved It's through faith and what He says in 
Chapter 3 is he says, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. A righteousness from God. It's God's very righteousness. You see, that's what we have to have to be saved. In order to make it to heaven, we got to be perfectly righteous. And we're not. We're perfectly vile. And what happened in the substitution in the atonement is that Jesus took our sin and satisfied the wrath of God. And He, when we trust Him, He gives us His very righteousness. And the thrust of the argument is, if God did that for you while you were a sinner, His enemy, depraved, a rebel, and now you are His very righteousness, how is He going to withhold anything from you, having given you the best when you were the worst? What's He going to do now with the rest, now that you're the very righteousness of God? That's a powerful argument. Let me say that again. God, having given you the best, His co-equal, co-eternal, Holy Son, when you were the worst, what's He going to do now through justification? You have become the very righteousness of God. There's only one thing He can do. He's going to give you the rest. He's going to give you the rest. Oh, man. That argument is sound. That argument is profound. That argument should cause you to rejoice every day, every moment, for all of eternity. If you're a son or a daughter of God, Because in it is the guarantee of all things. When you are downtrodden by the world, when you are discouraged by circumstances, when things are against you, turn your eyes to the cross of Jesus. There's the answer. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, Father, I... Lord, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed at the depth of your love proven by the cross of Jesus Christ for me. Thank you. Oh, the word is so sounds so impotent to convey what really should be conveyed. I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Lord, I, I do pray that you would help us to grasp the power in the truth of Romans 8.32. And through that, that our 
doubts and our fears would be assailed and our conviction of our security as sons and daughters of God would be forever grounded and unshakable and unmovable and undefeatable and all-conquering because it is grounded in the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and the Father who did not spare but gave him up for us all. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.